go. Let's try this thing out. Okay, we are studying, um, what are we studying? Divine institutions. <laughs> we are studying the divine institutions, and presently we've been looking at the will of God and the will of man, and uh, trying to get some insight into how he has laid out this plan. Um, as we go through and put things together in Scripture, we find uh, that there's a beautiful picture of how God works all things together for good, how he can do that, not overrule the volition of anybody, how he keeps that intact throughout the course of the ages. And uh, after we get done with this particular section, we're going to uh, go through how he manages to control history without overruling volition in the process and so we're going to take a look at some principles there but that's where we're going next after we finish this it's a little different format it's a fill in the blank format uh, I've done this in the past before and um, so you, you kind of got to stay awake <laughs> to, to keep up with it and uh, fill in the blanks I hope the print's big enough to help out a little bit but uh, Anyway, before we begin, we need to take a few moments for silent prayer to prepare ourselves to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you. We're so blessed and honored and privileged to be called your, your kids. Father, you have put us in a country that for now is still free, but Father, we see that even that's being challenged. Father, you have given us an opportunity this morning to be able to put away all the cares and pressures and problems of the world and even all the, the good things, all the joys, just to decide to feed upon your word. So I pray that's what we would do today. I pray that we would be encouraged and uh, edified and enlightened, that we might be able to go forth from here and serve you. We ask this in, Genesis, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the plan of God, and again, that chart is very important. <clears throat> we have to identify his different types of will. His sovereign will comes from his kingship. That means that he makes uh, edicts, decrees, he declares penalties, and he also carries with that uh, mercy and grace. So that's important to know. Overruling will is whenever he reaches into time and space from time to time to overrule uh, the normal laws of nature, what is going on. And so the uh, uh, overruling will of God would be like the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, that would be just one thing along with some of the other major miracles that he's done throughout the course of time, an overruling will of God. Now we see that he has established divine standards and he has also established worldly standards or has identified those. We call the divine standards plus R. That's righteousness in the good sense. We call the worldly standards minus R because they're missing the righteousness of God. People can even do good things for the wrong reasons. You can give someone a drink of water because they are thirsty, but the reason is for uh, maybe for self-glorification or whatever. It's not, to, it's not to the glory of God if you have chosen against God. So that's called the human good. That was part of the forbidden tree that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat of, but chose to anyway. We see also his directive will. The, what does God want me to do? 
Now that is <clears throat> something that uh, a lot of times people say, I just want to know what God's will is. And normally what they're saying is I'm trying to figure a way around it. Whenever I hear that as a pastor, well, I just want to know God's will for my life. Well, here it is. <laughs> it's written down right here. Here's the verse. Uh, that's not quite what I'm looking for. So anyway, they learn to make excuses and all those things that go with it. His perfect will is whenever we are, when we understand his directive will, what it is for our life, what he has prescribed for our life, and we are living within that. That's where we want to be. That's the best place we could possibly be. Permissive will is where we normally live in, and permissive will can even include um, good things. It's not, not inherently wrong that it's his permissive will, because some things he does not decree. Some things he does not say, like what color socks you're going to wear this morning, or even if you're going to wear any socks, or what kind of food you're going to have at lunch after uh, we get done here, or what kind of food you're not going to have at lunch. Those things are you're not going to find in directive will. We're in a dispensation that is designed to give you the freedom. Use your common sense. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, and so we, we learn accordingly. Now we have the freedom to make those decisions that God has established and given to us. And this plus V and minus V are for positive volition. When you make things in, in a conjunction with what he has said to do, then you're functioning positively. You're using your, your volition to make good decisions that go along with the directive will of God. Negative, the negative V, minus V there, is when he just says, well, I'm not going to do it. You know, kind of like <clears throat> Adam. He was told not to eat from the tree, and he had a choice. He had a choice of, of the woman outside of the garden or God inside the garden, and he chose the woman outside of the garden. That's what he did. That was a negative choice, negative volition. He went against God's will, and we're constantly tested with such things. Whenever we obey his absolutes, then we suffer because the Lord says we will. That's undeserved suffering. Now, that's where we're going to have part of our life because we're in a fallen world. We have a sin nature fighting us from the inside. We have the devil and his forces fighting us from the outside. And so we're going to face uh, difficulties. If the Lord tarries and this nation goes on very far, no matter who wins the election, the way it is headed right now, things are going to get progressively worse for Christians. And that's part of what was described by Paul in the, second, in the third chapter of 2 Timothy almost 2,000 years ago. He said things are going to go from bad to worse. In the last days, know this, men shall be lovers of self. We call that today a narcissist. Lovers of money. They're going to they're be greedy. That's who they're going to be. And then it says later in the chapter, and it'll go from bad to worse. And you know what it says at the end of the chapter? All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. It's a declaration of inspiration of the entire Scripture. And what is, what's the, one of the main attacks in the last days? The authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture. Because if you can discredit that, then uh, you've discredited it a lot. Why, why bother to study such things? Because a lot of people may give lip service to God. Jesus said, you people honor me with your lips and your heart is far away. But they act like they're atheists. 
because if if uh, if you say there is no God, then you have no moral standard. You don't accept the Bible as authoritative. It just goes way downhill from there. But a lot of people, even though they profess the Lord with their lips, they don't honor Him as God. They they're not seeking to do that which is pleasing in His eyes. Right now we have counseling and counseling situations where they teach you to embrace your sin don't feel guilty about it why should you feel guilty about it if there's no bible there's no such thing as sin so why should you feel guilty about it i remember growing up we certainly had a real good picture of accountability taught to us real fast because if you whack your brother you shall get whacked yourself i mean that was part of the law of the land for you know kids two years apart you just didn't didn't hurt a sibling um, if you disobey the abs the absolutes um, that's deserved discipline if the lord says don't do this and you do it and you receive discipline that's deserved discipline that's what it is now the great thing about the plan of god is that he can take even deserved discipline and turn it into major blessing that's what he can do but first you have to turn to the Lord now <clears throat> we fight the penalty of sin by how do we fight it by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and it's forever erased and paid for that's perfect will that's what he wants from us power of sin though we're still going to battle in this in this issue of permissive will all over the course of our entire life now there are relative issues I, I talk to a lot of people, hear a lot of theologians, converse with them, and they don't like the term relative at all. But there are some things that are relative issues. And these relative issues, we're either going to test God or we're going to trust God. Or we're, gonna, we're either going to test Him or be tempted to do something else. The, every set of circumstances is a test and a temptation. I knew it'd come out eventually every single one of them a test to trust God or a test to trust the world that's the temptation that goes with it regarding what see these things are relative your vocation okay God knows what your vocation is going to be he knows what you're going to choose but God didn't give you that vocation the hygiene the hygiene is uh, various ways people take care of themselves you know it used to be the Saturday night bath you know, just before you went to the Saturday night dance so you could go to church Sunday morning and repent again and walk the aisles. You know, that's what the way it used to be. But now, it, it's, uh, well, you have to have a daily bath or you're not hygienic. Well, I'm not going to argue with that. It's not a, not a bad idea, but it's not ordained in Scripture anywhere that I can find. Um, <clears throat> diet, well, it was under the Mosaic Law, but it's not now. Um, clothing <clears throat> some things should be outlawed uh, quite honestly <clears throat> the only thing it says about clothing in the New Testament is women should dress modestly now define modestly I've heard a lot of definitions of modestly things ought to be covered up that ought to be covered up maybe that's the answer to it shelter where are you going to live you're going to live in a grass hut. You're going to live in a mansion. That's, see, that's a matter of choice. That's not 
designated by the word of God. Economics. What do you spend your money on? Now we know we should take care of those we owe. We should do that. We should give to the Lord. That's what we should do. We know we should. But beyond that, what do you do with the excess? Did he tell you to go give away all the excess? Or did he tell you you could keep some for yourself? Read 1 Timothy 6 if you have a question about that last part. Because he said he made all these things for us to gratefully enjoy. These things, these nice things of the world. Don't feel guilty if you go out and buy something nice for yourself. Now, if you do it and don't pay the rent or the utility bills, that's a problem, see? But you can buy, go buy something if you want to go buy something, okay? Because these things are made to be gratefully enjoyed by those who love the Lord. That's right after the passage about the love of money. So he's saying it's okay to have money. It's not a problem. Just consider how you use it. And don't feel guilty if you go buy something nice for yourself. If you've taken care of other business first. Preferences. Some people prefer blue and some people prefer red. And I'm not talking about politics. Yet that too is a preference. Is it not? Now, <clears throat> this is part of what we... Learn, 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. We saw that we could go from bad decisions to worse decisions to the worst decisions. And we could also go from good decisions. Okay, It's a good decision to eat healthy food Okay, today. It's a better decision to do it more frequently. Is it not? Would it possibly be the best decision to do it all the time? It would seem so, but that's a relative issue because we're free to eat anything we choose to eat, and we're not to stand in judgment of others. And how, what, how's this all gauged? In our intents. We, we know the verse Hebrews 4.12. He's the judge of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What comes out of us? This is all part of the plan of God. But then this thing that we're really thinking on the inside, how does it come forth in our speech? And how does it come forth in our actions? So all three of those things are subject to the righteousness of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> we're going to look now at Jesus the Messiah. Since he is God in the flesh, he is true humanity, true deity at the same time, they're wrapped up into one entity. And it's hard to define the hypostatic union. I have a, a friend, he's passed on to be with the Lord now, and he, he actually did an electrical engineering flowchart of the way the hypostatic union worked way back when we were in seminary. And it was kind of interesting, had, you know, but the thing about the hypostatic union. Uh, I do see it as containing elements that we just don't understand right now. And to put it into a flow chart, you can, you can greatly make, you can make big mistakes if you do that. Um, when was his humanity working? When was his deity working? You know what? They were both working. That's what we can say. True humanity, true deity in the same person. Now, how did the Lord live? Because he obviously is the greatest example we could ever have. People today try to dismiss the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's the one that set the example. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Did he not? Night before the cross, he said, I am 
the way. This is the path that you should follow. I am the truth. It's not just found in a concept. It's found in a person. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So is he speaking truth there? We believe that he, that he is. Now in Hebrews 10.7. It's talking there about the Lord. Literal translation. Is then I said. The I is the Lord. Behold. I have arrived. It's an interesting word in the Greek. I'm not going to go back through all of it again. Hako doesn't look at the destination. Which is, it's translated in the English, normally I have come to do your will. No, it says I've arrived. It wasn't about the journey. It was about the arrival. So he's talking about the hypostatic union. I have arrived. And it says in the title of the little book, it has been written. To do your will, O the God. Now, this is Messiah in hypostatic union saying, I arrived to do your will. Now, this little comment in here we'll deal with in just a second. But the first thing, Christ arrived with one purpose in mind. Christ arrived with one purpose in mind which was to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He wanted to provide salvation for all of humanity, and he accomplished that. Now, was that the Lord's will? Okay, was that the Father's will? Was that God's will? That's part of what we're looking at here. Now, the book quoted is not the Mosaic Law. You start looking around trying to find this. Uh, uh, that says uh, in, in the title of the book, and in the, in the title of the book, it has been written to do your will, and you're going, Where, what book? Now, anybody goes through studying the Bible, and you go, what book? Well, there are several other books that are quoted and referred to in the scriptures that are not the book of life not the lamb's book of life so as you start putting the puzzle pieces together you reach a conclusion that there's a book that contains the plan of the ages now is that consistent with who god is answered yes he lays out the end from the beginning does he not if he's laid it out already is it possible it's written down somewhere well, this is kind of an indication that it is written down What's going on right now between God and Satan? An amazing battle, an appeal of Satan trying to prove God wrong. So what does God do? He lays it out, and it's written down somewhere. This is the way that it is going to happen. So it's done beforehand, so God has additional proof. Whenever Satan shows up at the great white throne for his final judgment to be cast in the lake of fire forever and ever, here's the proof. He laid out the plan. The end from the beginning. That's what he did. And it's written down. You know, God's plan of the ages was, was, I think, revealed through the stars. It was communicated to individuals like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prior to it being written down. Once it got written down, it wasn't that it solidified it. It's just that it made it more plain. Because by the time of Moses, things were really messed up. 
By the time of Moses, the Babylonians had come in. The Sumerians had come in. They had come in and added, their, added a mythology to the scripture. And now people without, uh, without learning, I would say, go back and say, well, Moses just took the, um, uh, the Bible and the Genesis accounts and stuff from the ancient myths. And he didn't. There's a new book out, uh, relatively new, by Titus Kennedy. Uh, no Titus, no his daddy. Uh, really good. He's a, a Christian archaeologist. Now, how scarce are those? But Titus has gone in. He's written a book called uh, Unearthing the Bible. And it's a uh, hundred archaeological discoveries or something that bring the Bible to life that he's connecting the dots on. The first couple of chapters deal with the fact that, that uh, no, the, Moses didn't take the ancient myths and develop a theology off of them. These things have always been here. If you accept the Bible the way it is written, then you find out things that really happen. And you know what, ha what really happened with Sumer and Babylon and Egypt? They were copies. They were distortions of the reality. Because... Judaism, the, the Judaism faith under the, the pre-flood, it pre-existed all that stuff because all that other stuff is post-flood. So it was already there. It got brought through by Noah and his sons. And it got developed by the time of the Tower of Babel so the world was going to be, so God dispersed uh, people out into the world. But there is another book that we we just have an inference to and I call it the plan of the ages because that seems to describe it pretty well now integral pieces of the book of the ages are contained within the written and revealed word of God which we know as the Bible now, how, where do these come from well we, we've called this the background noise it's the elevator music it's the stuff that's running in the background of the entire Bible that you you get little keys to from time to time. The study of the angelic conflict. We know there's a battle between God and Satan. Why? Why do we know that? We know that the ruler of this world has been judged, right? Jesus said that. We also know that his judgment is a lake of fire. Jesus also said that. We know that he's not in the lake of fire. That's been revealed to us. So we find ourselves in the middle of this plan of the ages. So you put together bits and pieces of the angelic conflict, and what you find is that there is another book that's got some of these things written down in it so that uh, it would it, it really would hold up in a court of law. God's interested in righteousness. If righteousness won't hold up in a court of law, it won't hold up, will it? So he's got the, the absolute court. He's got the righteousness set down, and he's got it, got it written. Now, the Lord in his humanity has seen what the Father desires. He became perfect humanity, true humanity. That means he had the ability to decide. Becoming true humanity also means that he had the ability to fall. That's something people don't want to go down that road. Was Jesus not able to sin? This is a big theological battle in seminaries. Was he not able to sin or was he able not to sin? Oh, that's quite a question, isn't it? That, that goes into 
deep philosophy and thought was he not able to sin or was he able not to sin if he was not able to sin I don't think he was true humanity he wasn't the second Adam because Adam sure could have sinned Adam was able not to sin but Adam chose to sin now what about Messiah well there's actually a passage on these are I can't stay away from some of these rabbit trails. Excuse me. John 8, 54 says, If I glorify my... The, the Pharisees are going after him once again. He says, If I glorify myself, my glory is not of the Father. Now, is self-glorification a sin? Says it all over the Bible, doesn't it? The if there is a third-class condition in the Greek. Which says, I could. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. So Jesus was able not to sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, which he relied on, did not sin. And to me, that's the, the most amazing thing. One of the most amazing things about the life of Christ walking around here on the earth. Because when the devil tempted him, it was a temptation. See, it's not a sin to be tempted. The devil tempted him. And the Lord just said no to it. He said no to it. It's, a, it's amazing. The Lord in his humanity has seen what the Father desires. Now what did he do in his humanity? Again, little pieces of the puzzle you find put in there. Luke 2, 40 and 42. After we've been blown away by the, by the birth of the Messiah. And the revelation of Mary in chapter 1. And the Messiah's birth in chapter 2. It says, And the child grew in knowledge and wisdom. Jesus was learning the scriptures in his humanity. As God, he wrote them. But his humanity had, was required to do this as true and perfect humanity. Now, <clears throat> he is the supreme example of doing the Father's will. And don't you want somebody, if they're communicating the will of God, to set an example? One of the biggest things the Lord was upset with at the first advent was hypocrisy. People that say one thing and do something else. It's that, that way still today. I don't think anybody loves a hypocrite. Uh, it's real easy for one hypocrite to call another hypocrite a hypocrite. It seems like they're easy to identify. Um, but Jesus is the supreme example of doing the Father's will. How do we know that? This little thing called the Lord's Prayer that we oftentimes memorize. The Lord's praying and he says, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Jesus lived the perfect life in order to communicate the perfect message. Just part of what he did. That's who he was. He did not do things that would discredit the message. Of course, the, the, the lying hypocrite uh, religious Jews accused him of everything that you can imagine accused him of being a blasphemer he said you know if I told you anything else I'd be a liar like you but I'm not I'm going to tell you the truth before Abraham came into existence I am oh you, you think you're gods in your own mind scripture says you are you think you're a bunch of little gods didn't the Pharisees think that they thought that they had reached the apex of, of authority. 
their respect. They paraded around in their long robes. That's their robes in our earlier in chapter 6 of Matthew. Just wanting the approval of men. And the Lord said, I tell you, they've got their reward in full. They've got their reward in full. He was a supreme example. Not, he, he says, your kingdom come. Humanity talking to deity. Your will be done. Now it's not the Father's will that any person should perish. Either through lack of salvation. And that's normally what how people view this, this passage. Either through a lack of salvation or discipline for lack of obedience. When you think about that, that's not, often not added to it. But the Lord does not want anyone to perish, nor does he want anyone to undergo discipline, deserve discipline, because they're disobedient to what has been laid out. Matthew 18, 14 says, Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones perish. That, isn't that compatible with who God is? With righteousness, justice, and love put together, you don't want anybody to die. You don't want anyone to perish. You don't want anyone to, to die for lack of obedience. What, what further examples do we have of that? How about Hebrews chapter 4, where they had a chance to enter into his rest, and yet the Jews died in the desert. Did he want them to die in the desert? No. Did he know they were going to? Yes. Was he the cause of some of it? Yes. Because there are times throughout history God's grace runs out. Ran out with the flood generation, didn't it? Ran out with Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't it? Ran out with the northern kingdom in 721. Ran out with this, uh, the southern kingdom. Ran out with the Jews back in the land in 70 AD. There are times that his grace runs out. Now, what about the importance of God's will? The importance of his will. Why do we need to know it? Why should we want to know it? What benefit is it to us? First of all, it establishes the parameters for salvation. From the penalty for sin. Which is not through the self-will of humanity. Now some people actually think. They, they, they can will themselves into eternity and will themselves into heaven. That's called self-will. And they, they do that and you go, of course, that's crazy for most of us. But there are people that think that, gosh, if I just have enough positive thoughts that uh, over the course of time, then, then I can will myself into this next life because God put eternity in the hearts of men so everybody's thinking about it at least at some point in their life but what does John 1 verse 12 and 13 says say as many as received him okay as many as received him we we're in John 1 how's that start in the beginning was the word nor okay to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So faith is all about the object of the faith. And to them, he said, you believe in his name, you're going to have this e eternal life. 
And then it says, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh. So you have to deal with that passage. Nor the will of man, but of God. How are we born again? Because we will ourselves to be born again? No. We're born again because we believe in his name. The one who can give us the new birth. That's how we're born again. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But it's saying that you can't just decide, well, I'm going to go to heaven and go to heaven. There is a way to get there. <laughs> and it's not laid out, it's, it's laid out in Scripture very clearly through Jesus Christ, his Son. A little later on, and uh, we all know John 3.16, Whosoever believes in him shall not perish. We know 3.36, who believes in the Son has life. Who does not believe in the Son? Wrath of God abides on him. Now, <clears throat> the importance of God's will. It's needed to know how to enter the kingdom. You want to know how to do it? Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now what is the will of the Father of Jesus Christ? To get into heaven. To believe in his Son. That's spelled out all throughout the Gospels. That's what his will is. The Jews would take it and twist it around because the Gospel's already been given several times by Jesus Christ when they're asking this question based on the chronology of the three and a half years of his ministry. It's already been given, so they should have known. But what are they wanting to know what to do? Well, what other laws are we going to have? You know, are we going to have, they've, they've got not only the Mosaic law, which nobody could keep, but they added to it stuff that nobody could keep. Anyway, that's, that's a long study all by itself of how many additions did the Jews make to the law. But to me, it's kind of a futile study, so we're not going to go there. Anyway, it establishes requirements to enter his family. Matthew 12. 49 and 50, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and brothers. I just went back through reanalyzing, putting together some stuff concerning Roman Catholicism. And uh, this will be going in the new book. Hopefully it will be out by the end of the year. And <clears throat> we, this, this thing about who is Mary... Well, some believe that Mary was actually born of a virgin. She didn't just give the virgin, virgin birth, but she had to be born of a virgin so she'd be pure enough to bring God into the world. But part of the problem with that is, what about Mary's grandma? Didn't she have to be pure too? You keep going back, you, you've got an impossible situation there. Now, was Mary sinless? Because some claim that she was not only a virgin all of her life. Huh. What did he say? He says, Behold my mother and my brothers. We're given the names of his half-brothers. The Holy Spirit was not their father. Joseph was their father. So he had other brothers. Mary did not remain a virgin all of her life. According to the scriptures. And he says, Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he's my brother and sister and mother. 
So his mother and brothers were, were, didn't know what the oldest son was there to do. They were trying to take him off his game, so to speak. They, were, they were, thought he had lost his marbles, and they wanted him to come home. You know, it's kind of like somebody decides to be a missionary, and they don't have the full backing of mom and dad. And they go out, well, when are you going to come to your senses and get a real job? You know, you're a pastor. Oh, I've, I've actually had that question asked a couple of times. And you go, well, there's a little more to it than getting up on Sunday morning and preaching for 15 minutes and passing an offering plate. There's a little more to it than that. But some people have no, no grasp. Um, one of the, the founders of Trinity, Bill Harwell, used to say, we have two people who are retired in this church, you and me. He says, all you do is get up and talk for a couple of hours. And uh, we used to go, he was kidding. And we go back, we go back and forth on that. And it was, a, it was a lot of fun. I was like, why don't you just follow me around for a week, Bill? <laughs> Let's see, see how this works. Well, requirements to enter his family is to believe in the Father, to believe in the Son. Now, God's will is spiritual nourishment. This, these are passages. See, Jesus lived a perfect life so he could communicate a perfect message okay, that would help and benefit all of us who follow after him. And in John chapter 4, I love this passage. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You know, the... the will of God what he wants us to do is spiritual nourishment to us it should be shouldn't it shouldn't it be spiritual nourishment to do that to accomplish his work now what what was the occasion he took the disciples into Samaria <laughs> to a Samaritan village the disciples didn't even want to be there because that was made them unclean to go into that Samaritan village would make them unclean. So he sent them into the village to get food. You remember that. And there was a woman at the well. The story of the woman at the well. And uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary sang a song about it 50 years ago. You know, that's, that's what they did. But here's the woman at the well. And she, uh, she recognized, are you the prophet? And he says, yeah. So she goes and gets the whole village in the meantime, she passes these disciples that she just running like a crazy woman. And here comes the disciples coming back up the hill with his food. And they said, hey, Lord, we brought some food back. And that's when he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, I th <laughs> he, he said, I have food you don't know anything about. What is the food they didn't know anything about? <laughs> Doing the will of of God they didn't have it down not even remotely and so uh, it's interesting all these great saints you know they were anything they, they were they were saved but they certainly weren't mature these great people didn't bring one person back from that village to meet the king of kings not one but the woman did remember brought the whole village back spiritual nourishment is what Jesus told them 
to know what God wants me to do is nourishment for my soul. And it's more important than our personal agendas. Way more important than our personal agendas. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Wouldn't that be interesting to have judges sitting throughout any land that had that attitude? The one that brought them into existence, they wouldn't be there without the Lord God Almighty. Shouldn't it be their will to do his will? To judge righteously and not take a bribe? And it's, he says, I don't seek my own will. That's politics. Judges are be, to be devoid of politics. John chapter 6, 38. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him. Now that's an important verse. <laughs> because that shows His kingship and His law. That anyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. That is the gospel being spelled out about as clearly as you can spell it out. God hears the prayers of those who are obedient to His will. And you know, he hears everything. So that's why hears here is in brackets. Because God can't not hear everything. He's omniscient. He already knows what, what we're going to think before we think it. He didn't make us think it, but he already knows what we're going to think. But <clears throat> he hears the prayers of those obedient. If you're living uh, on the straight and narrow, trying to walk down the straight and narrow, and you ask, then... You get special attention, if you will. John 9.31 says, We know God does not, hear the, does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears Him. Uh, well, that's the, that's the viewpoint of the Pharisees, but didn't He hear some guy, Have mercy on me, a sinner? Didn't He hear that prayer? What's His will? No one perish, but all have a change of mind, come to a full knowledge of the truth. So in a sense, he, he hears. And it details God's will, what's involved in our sanctification. And see, this is, this is a fairly simple word study. Look up the lama, the word that is used for will. There's several words. The lama and bulomai are the two main ones. The lama comes from a word that means to desire. What does God desire? Bulomai comes from a word as what does God decree? And they are different. They are distinctly different to be to be found there. So, First Thessalonians chapter four verses three to eight. Now, you think about these passages and. And hopefully things click and you go, seems like there's a passage on the rapture not far after that. And you'd be right, beginning in verse 13. But here is the lead up to that. Because what should we be doing? We should seek to become more and more mature. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. Remember, this is a model church. Now, it doesn't mean they're perfect. 
but it means that they are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are advancing. They make mistakes, but they get up and they keep moving. And he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now see, it's a church, so they're already believers. So there is a sanctification that goes beyond that initial faith. Okay? Be ye holy as I am holy, is the way Peter said it. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the, the, ancient, the churches in the ancient world were in, located in cities that were known for their immorality and the temple prostitutes and all the, the vile stuff that went on under the Roman Empire. And he said, that's not what we're supposed to be as Christians. Because you go all the way back from, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. How far do you want to go? Uh, let's see. Uh, for this cause, man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. It kind of indicates that there should be a, a commitment to one another. You find, oh, go on into um, Genesis 18. Sodom and Gomorrah, what was the problem? Violation of the laws of man and woman in a marriage. Now, <coughs> so it says that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own ves vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Because God has not called us believers for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. See, our salvation is secure, our time in heaven. But you want to live the best life you can live now? This is how you go about it. Be sanctified, set apart for use by the Lord. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I find it <coughs> interesting. I've talked to people over the course of time. They said, I just want to be led of the Holy Spirit. And then they're talking about something that is not holy, that the Lord is getting ready to lead them to. And I'm going... Isn't he called the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Do you honestly think the Holy Spirit will lead you into unholiness? Try to explain that to me. There's no way, no way to do that. Now, <clears throat> there's more here, and I just get, again, get my throat cleared. But the, the H is where we'll stop, and often states the conditions for receiving his promises sometimes people make the mistake they look into scripture and they find a promise and they claim a promise and they don't realize that some of them come with conditions they're conditional promises Abraham people look at that as taught in seminaries as an unconditional promise it was not an unconditional promise to Abraham until he complied with the requirements, the conditions. Go forth from the land of your relatives. That's a condition. To the land that I will show you. And there I will make you a great nation. What if he wouldn't have went? Well, <clears throat> there were conditions. Then when he did that, it became an unconditional 
covenant to be passed on to his uh, offspring. And then how did they enjoy it? Look at Jacob and Esau. Jacob at least hung on to the covenant. Esau rejected the covenant. Esau didn't get the blessings that went with it that Jacob and his offspring did. So it then comes to be your compliance and obedience with the covenant as to whether or not you get blessed accordingly. A lot of promises are conditional. Hebrews 10, for you have need of endurance, so when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Sometimes it's conditional. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you <clears throat> once again for your amazing word. Thank you again for letting us see the importance of knowing, learning, and doing your will. Father, it, it humbles us to think about it. But yet, Father, you made it very clear to us. So we can certainly know a lot of the things that you want. And I think a lot of our time would be taken up seeking to do the things that are pleasing in your eyes. May we all do that, that we may get, get you all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.